0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The codices and manuscripts of the Middle Ages are littered with the acts of kings and the edicts of bishops full of tales of knightly romance and monkish devotions. Read between the lines, though, and you'll find the women who made the medieval world run, bookkeepers and brewers, weavers and wine merchants, serfs, and sex workers. They never got credit for it, though, and even their first names are often obscured by those of their husbands and fathers, but these women's lives were much richer and more varied than we've been led to expect. Eleanor Yonaga devotes her new book, The Once and Future Sex, going medieval on women's roles in society, to these ordinary and extraordinary women. Her analysis of the ways in which their lives were circumscribed shows how radically gender norms have changed, though not always improved, since the so-called Dark Ages. And fair warning, in our conversation today, we do talk quite a bit about sex, mostly because medieval people were obsessed with it and weren't quite as prudish as modern American society. So it might not be the most appropriate episode for kiddos. And there is some explicit language, mostly in reference to a certain London street name. Eleanor Yanaga, who teaches medieval and early modern history at the London School of Economics, joins us from across the pond to talk about medieval women. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Eleanor.
1: Oh, such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Longtime listeners will not be surprised to hear that I've been reading even more about the Middle Ages recently, mostly because I keep, like, finding things that surprise me about it. Mm -hmm. It is also a huge period of history, and things change a lot over time. You know, like, you can talk about women's work before and after the plague. You can talk about women's work in, like, England versus in Italy. And it's like, how do you write a book about women's (laughs) roles in the Middle Ages and keep it, you know— circumspect?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a a great question. So yeah, I mean, because it's a thousand years of history, right? And so obviously, to a certain extent, what you are doing is kind of rounding up. So I'm a social historian by training. That's what I do. You know, I I look at society more generally, and I'm interested in regular people and what what they're up to and this sort of thing. And a big way that you end up doing that is kind of in the same way that sociologists or anthropologists go about their work. So you kind of uh, have to get together all the little building blocks to understand the philosophy of how people are working. And to be fair, like if you're talking about something like work, it does kind of change, but not really you know the answer is women are doing a lot of it basically if if there is as any specific role in society women are doing it at a point in time um granted there are exceptions to this you know a woman's never going to get to be pope uh, a woman's never going to be able to be a bishop Uh, but queens can exercise the same level of power as kings and all the way down. And, you know, that ebbs and it flows. There can be arguments about um, how, for example, succession works in those families. But even having said that, it's a thousand years of history in which about 85% of the European population are peasants. So, you know, we're talking about farming. When you talk about work in the medieval period, it's farming, which is very interesting actually, you know, like shout out to the peasants. They're, they're doing important things. The most important thing is, is keeping everyone fed for sure. Uh, but women are involved in doing every single aspect of farm work that there is plus a whole host of other things like looking after kids, you know, basic education. Um, they do the brewing, they do the weaving, they do the spinning, you know, all these things that we don't think about because it's, it doesn't come up for us. You know, we don't have to make our own yarn. Uh, which is nice. And sure, that can look really, really different in the 16th century than in the 8th century because, you know, by then you have spinning wheels and stuff like that, and that's cool. But, you know, the work is still the work. Um, other things that the book covers, like in terms of beauty standards, that's a really interesting one because um, you can't actually follow them until kind of the what we call the high medieval period so about the 12th century onwards uh because people didn't write down what they thought was hot uh for a really long time so like uh ancient greeks and stuff they were like this this is not important to us you know if they were going to say like okay i'm describing helen of troy the hottest lady there ever was they're like she was blonde that's that's it you know and you leave it there um, and, you know, you can look at art to see what they think a hot lady is in the ninth century, something like that. That's fine. But then from, you know, the 12th century forward, you, you can know. But that's that tells us something in and of itself, right? You know, if this is still kind of like in flux, it kind of helps us to understand how beauty standards are created, how people adhere to them. Um, and the sexuality stuff is pretty much exactly the same over the entire medieval period, which is uh, women are rather horny, aren't they? We should keep an eye on them. But the, the way that I get uh, information about this is by looking um, through philosophical texts, through theological texts. Um, you can look at really cool things like uh, one of my favorite sources are penitentials, which are ex- essentially guidebooks for priests when they're doing confession so it's like oh here are some questions that you can ask and then if people say yes they've done this sin then this is what you give them in penance right so that they can kind of uh, dig the right out of that um things that i've looked at include like guidebooks that fathers wrote for their daughters about comportment and th- things like that um court records so, you know, uh, what, what are ladies getting arrested for and, and what are they up to? Um, usually making bad beer or selling bread for uh, saying it's heavier than it is, things like that. So, you know, there's all these ways to kind of plot out how a society feels about a gender but you just have to take really aggregate strains of things in order to get a complex whole. And while it's definitely true that there are huge social differences across Europe, one of the things that's true about the medieval period in Europe is that it is largely Christian um, and they do see themselves as the logical inheritors of Rome. So they stick to these certain ideals that have kind of been brought in both by Christians and by Romans. And um, the way that I always talk about this is you need to sort of think about it like uh, the way people talk about improv, where every time a medieval person gets hold of something from the ancient world, they say, yes, and so like, oh, yes, So everything that Aristotle says is absolutely true and Jesus You know, and that's kind of how you come to a conclusion in the medieval world. And so with all those things together, you can get a picture about what generalized rules are. But, you know, what's true for a girl named Eloise in the 12th century in France is going to be really, really different to, you know, uh, Hypathea, who lives in Constantinople in the 9th century. And that's just a a fact. But there are certain social guidances that we can find to be true.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I think is interesting, too, which you lay out, like, on page two, is that we often think that the Middle Ages were just worse. Mm. You know, like, we bathe ourselves, Mm -hmm. and we don't burn women as witches anymore, so, like, clearly, things are much better. And I'm curious if you can unpack for me why exactly this spin on the middle ages and medieval women in particular bugged you enough that you wanted to write a whole book about
1: it yeah it's an interesting one because you know we do use medieval as a shorthand for bad you know it gets thrown away all the time we like oh well the, well the medieval period is bad and we like to tell ourselves the story about history where well we're always getting better right that's the story of history so things are kind of always becoming more equitable naturally and that's just not the case right um what and, and indeed, what tends to be true is that there are certain things that are kind of a little bit better for medieval women at times than they are for modern women, and you know there are the there are certain things that that just kind of come up over and over again. So, uh, for example, things like abortion, you know, right? Because where we spend a really long time just like trying to access abortion rights, you know, now and it's always this thing that is really um, up in the air. And this, so because we have to fight really hard for this, there tends to be this natural assumption that, for example, abortion is, was really difficult to procure in the Middle Ages, and that's not true. The church kind of, you know, it's not their favorite thing. They're not like, oh, I hope all you ladies had a great abortion today. Hope that goes well for you. you know, that's, not, that's not what it is. Uh, but for medieval people, because uh, birth control is kind of non-extant, you know, the only other way of not having a child is like full infanticide. So the church is sort of like, yeah, no abortion in the first trimester. Yeah, okay. Like uh, 10 Hail Marys, please don't do it again. But could you do not have a baby and then kill it, right? Because the medieval church is super, super clear on the fact that there is a difference between like an embryo and a full-on baby, right? Um, And now that changes in the modern period, the early modern period. And suddenly um, when you have both Protestants and Catholics, then there's this big race to prove who's holier. So that then suddenly, like people crack down on abortion a lot, and and it's stories like that that are quite interesting because everyone goes, oh well, medieval people must be worse. No, like a lot of time, modern people are worse. Like uh, talking about witchcraft, the witch persecutions are modern. That's just not a hallmark of say the 12th century. Everyone would be like, what are you talking about? And even then, you know, you, we can see things where it's like, oh, I think women are doing magic, right? So penitentials will say this, but they'll be like women. That is very bad that you're doing magic. You need to fast for a month. You see this suspicion of women, this belief that women are doing magical things, um, and often it's usually kind of sexually charged. There's a lot of concern that uh, women are making you not get a boner. uh, If you're a guy, that's the number one thing women are doing magic about um, in both the medieval and early modern periods. They're just, you will not get it up. Um, But modern people are like, oh, I will kill her. Over this, right? So it's important to kind of tell these stories though, because if we give in to this idea that, oh, well, we're always, things are always getting better, um, it also makes people think that they don't have to try to improve things, right? That there's some kind of inertia that's always dragging us forward um, into a time that is going to be more equitable. And I think what the point of the book overall is, is that actually one of the big hallmarks of the way our society tends to treat women um, is that we change what it is we don't like about women all the time. You know, the math, the the, the equation that we come up with as to why women are second-class citizens and why you don't have to respect women as much as men and why women are kind of an afterthought is constantly changing, but the outcome is always the same. And I think that when we can kind of look at different ways that women are related to and when we can kind of see the guts of it of how people have considered women to be over the years and see how much we've changed that but that we haven't really changed society to be any more equitable it can help us to understand where we need to put our efforts in order to truly change things
0: yeah i think it's especially interesting not just because we have this idea of progress but also because present day debates about why women can't do math or you know why women aren't in computer science like mm-hmm. Q, the infamous google memo etc all the other things mm. is mm-hmm. biological reasons but when you look at how you defined what women were and how they behaved in the middle ages it's really different than today so it seems super unstable especially when you talk about what you were talking about earlier with like women being really horny mm-hmm. in the middle ages and
1: this is the number one thing that gets said about women over and over again um and it happens it, it tends tends to kind of happen because the way that women are kind of defined or thought of is well women are not men the first person if you if you close your eyes and you think of a person it's a guy and um, all men are the original men and then you define women. In, in in opposition to that. Um, and so for even like, you know, the ancient Greeks, they say, well, what is a man? Well, a man is uh, particularly logical and he is this stoic, um, this, this stoic kind of understander of society and he's the civil individual. And he is not um, sex-addled and crazy uh, because he understands that his duty is to be logical and to, you know, serve the Republic or what have you. Women, on the other hand, are very silly and stupid, and they are not a part of the Republic, you know, they are just, you know, baby machines. Um, And so therefore they had just have sex on the brain, and they're just like trying to hump everything in sight, and that's the only thing that they care about. Um, And then even more than that, there is this concern going on for Romans and ancient Greeks alike, that if also, if you as a man have too much sex with a woman, you will become gay. Uh, what because <laughs> uh, because um in the humoral system, men are hot and dry, and women are therefore cold and wet right, in opposition to them. And women want to have sex because it warms us up because we're kind of like lizards, but for sex. But by extension, it's also drawing the heat off of men. So women are kind of like sex vampiring you if you are a man. (laughs) And um, you will become more like a woman as a result if you have too much sex because you will become cold and wet like they are. And then who knows, then you too might become interested in sex. And if you're interested in sex, you might have sex with anyone. And every single thing that's written at this point in time, like, just sees women as this massively sexual force that you have to keep an eye on constantly. Women have to kind of, like, be kept under the watchful eye of men because they're always having sex wrong and they're trying to have too much sex. They're trying to have sex with multiple partners, you know, so women are just seen as being completely disordered when it comes to sexuality. And I think this changes in the modern period and it also kind of changes with our understanding of sex. I think when we got a more medicalized idea about what sex is, ironically, we, we have not broken on the whole with the idea that sex is for procreation. But when we began to like, think about sex as something biological, right? It's a biological drive. Oh, well, then it makes sense and it's rational. So then men like Then men are the horny ones, you see? Like once it becomes this thing where if we like sex, men like it. Right. Because the women always have to be doing the negative thing.
0: One of the things I was really interested in reading your book is like the experience of ordinary women mm. and the experience of what kind of work was open to ordinary women if they didn't want to, say, like spend all of their time farming. <laughs> women had all kinds of jobs during this period. Sex work was a big category mm-hmm. of this, especially in a place like London. Um I recall learning about grope cunt lane. Yes.
1: Yes. (laughs) They went for it. Yeah. That is one of those interesting things too, because, um, you know, there is this assumption about medieval people that they're just way more prudish than us. And they are not, you know, they're like, Oh yeah. You want to see a sex worker, get yourself down to grope cunt lane. We lost our grope cunt lane. It got bombed. And then they were like, I think we're not building that back. Uh, (laughs) And and then it, it still exists in York, but it got renamed great lane so it's just like anytime you see a grape street heads up if, if it's in england it used to be grope cunt but um we still have cock lane here though and it's funny because people will be like "Ha ha, cock and it's like no seriously that's that's what it's named after so sex work is is one that's actually really important to talk about because it's really available to any women like if you can get if you could run off say because you're probably a serf too so it's like 85 percent of people are are uh, are peasants and 70 percent of them are serfs which means they're not free but Say that uh, your landlord wasn't paying attention and you've run off and it's like bright lights big city. Um, One of the big things that women can get into is sex work uh, because, you know, there isn't really a barrier. And it's incredibly lucrative for some women, not all women, but a lot of women. And it's something that you don't need any training for and a man isn't going to tell you what you know you can do there now the thing about sex work in the medieval world is it's legal it's not decriminalized so there are all kinds of rules that you have to follow like you know you have to you have to be working on grope hunt lane essentially or or cock lane or here in london you can also work in the stews which are kind of on the south side of the river across london bridge um, and that's because well everyone agrees that sex work is legal and you need sex work as well because there's this idea of sexuality that um you know, even though women are the horny ones, um, if men who are not married don't have an acceptable sexual outlet, they will get so horny um, and it will become built up inside of them that it will explode into violence. So most cities need to maintain a kind of robust sex trade in order to see to these men not doing violence. But you don't want them mixing in polite society, right? So um, oftentimes it's predicated that Areas of sex work need to be either outside the city walls or right next to the city walls, or you know, across the river here in London. Um, oftentimes, women also have to wear certain clothing that shows that they are a sex worker right away. So, uh, in London, you have to wear a hood of ray, which is kind of black and white striped cloth. Um, in the Holy Roman Empire, bells jingling around, and everybody knows that you're a sex worker. Uh, you know, things like this. You know, certain colors that you'll have to wear, um, and a lot of the time, uh, brothels are licensed. But that means that if you get caught practicing sex work outside of these areas, really terrible things can happen. So we know that one um, sex worker here got caught working in the city, not on Grope Cunt Lane, and her punishment was she was um, stripped to the waist and beaten through the street across London Bridge over to the Stews. you know, and they're like, well, this is where you stay. Now, so that's all horrible, but it is fundamentally a pretty good way to make money if you are looking to make money really quickly and then the other thing is that's what's quite pervasive about medieval society is you know that's just a job it's nobody's favorite job but if you decide to leave sex work that's fine and nobody really cares that you basically go to the church and say bless me father i have sinned and uh, they will say okay well your penance is to get married and have kids and if you do that then it's just like this plate is clean you pick up this uh, acceptable form of femininity. And the way that we treat sex work now is not like that, you know, where we treat every single sex worker like they've been victimized. Like, oh, they can never live a normal life. They can never be happy. Like the story of their whole life is this job that they did and they're, they're now damaged and destroyed forever. And it's like, is that better, you know, or, or is it better indeed uh, to make the profession completely illegal so that you end up in prison? Now, having said that, there are also lots of other jobs that you can get in cities. So, you know, a big one for uh, girls who just show up out of nowhere is service. So, you know, you can work in a rich guy's kitchen or be a maid. Um, If you've got good embroidery skills, there are people to work with. Um, But there are also women doing all of the trades as well. So um, in the medieval period, there are are guilds, uh, quick explanation of guilds. They're kind of somewhere between a union and a protection racket. You know, you can't just show up and say, I'm a leather maker. It's like you've got to be in the leather maker's guild um, in order to be tanning or, you know, to be a blacksmith, things of this nature. And now women can join some of these guilds. And there are certain ones that are more particularly feminized labor. So, for example, silk production is almost exclusively female in nature. Um, Also things like running bathhouses. Um, that is really often seen as feminized labor. But women are in all the guilds even when they're not supposed to be. Because as a general rule of thumb, if a dude is in a guild, like if he's a grocer or whatever, his wife does exactly the same trade as him. And it's really common, for example, for members of guilds to intermarry like from their family. So if your dad is a pepperer, you're going to marry a pepperer because you've been brought up in the trade and you know everything about it. So women will, you know, full cloth or make gloves or or do any of the things that their husband is doing because they're expected to. And then on top of that, women run the books. And this is just matter of course. Women are considered to be the ones that are for adding. Like, you know, that whole women aren't good at math thing. Not the way that medieval people say it. They're like, yeah, women, they, they are essentially calculators. Like, get, get them out there and, and they'll start doing it. Um. And then as a result of that, they end up doing uh, high level stuff like money lending or, um, you know, they oftentimes kind of keep a track of taxation, stuff like that. Uh, So it's it's, you cannot find an occupation that a woman hasn't done. You know, like even if it's down to blacksmiths, we've got plenty of blacksmiths who are on record as women here in London, which means there's a historical accuracy in the movie A Knight's Tale starring Heath Ledger, which which also (laughs) has a woman blacksmith in it. So thank you, Heath.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the question of doing what your husband did in the trades is a really interesting one too. Obviously, if your husband is a farmer, you are also farming, of course, yeah, Um, and doing all kinds of of other work. But you know, marriage was primarily an economic force. Occasionally, Mm -hmm. there was also love within marriage, which, like, great, good for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, when people became widowed or even divorced, which did happen, Mm -hmm. women could have some of that money sometimes they could oh, also yeah. have some of that land they could take on the business can you talk a little bit more about that and like where we got the idea that the ladies weren't doing that until the 20th century really
1: yeah i mean there there's this hilarious kind of tension a lot of the time in the medieval period about widows because it's like uh-oh there's no way to grind this woman down anymore right because um if you are doing your husband's profession and you've got hold of the books and you've got hold of the whole thing it's like uh-oh This woman's people now. And expressly, you know, this is one of the ways that women enter guilds as well, is if your husband's in a guild and he dies and you remain single, then you're in the guild. If you marry again, then it gets taken off of you and given to your husband because, again, it's presumed you're going to marry within the guild. But, uh, you know, you do also have divorced women who are running things. And now the number one way to get divorced uh, is to say your husband can't get it up. (laughs) Which is uh, why there's all this worry about how women are doing um, anti-boner magic. Uh, but uh, you, you, can, you can have your marriage annulled because of that. It's interesting, even if you are married, women still have a fair amount of autonomy over certain things. So, for example, holding their own land. So it's really common where if you get married, you know, you're, you're given a dowry. And there's kind of a common misconception about dowries because what dowries usually mean is that they're still going to be owned by the woman. So you bring it into the marriage and your name is going to be on that if you're a woman and it can't be alienated from you. Like your husband can't say, oh, I want you to sell off the land your parents gave you when we got married. You could just be like, no. So it's kind of a signal to the groom and his family like, oh, here's these ways that she's going to be self-sufficient. This is what she's bringing into the marriage. And people like let their daughters inherit all the time. You know, it's very, very common among peasant families. Now, as to why we don't see it, there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, The first place is if you're ever married, uh, you kind of fall into this category of what we call coveture. Say you marry John Smith, it'll be like John Smith and Mrs. John Smith. In records you know John Smith's wife you know and, so, and then we don't know anything about her sometimes you can kind of squint and see them you know like uh, there's a, a woman that I talk about in the book there's kind of like an international business in the Holy Roman Empire and she runs all the books and she's the one who does like the money changing back and forth and she's the one who looks after taxation and we have no idea what her name is we know the name of her husband we don't know her name if you can't even get a name, how do you necessarily get excited about a person? The other thing is the way that more old school history was done in general is, you know, it looks at, oh, well, history really is about men doing violent things to each other. You know, that's that's what history is, right? And so we hear over and over again, you hear every story of every king, you know every battle that Napoleon ever fought. We know all these things in kind of exhaustive measure but what women were making when they set up their own bakeries you know in montpellier is like eh. like it's, it's not treated as as real or exciting now personally i think that's really exciting i think it's really exciting to figure out what regular people are doing you know regular people are most people and they're the ones that actually keep society ticking over but you have to look really hard for them because you know they are seen as second class so you've just got you've just got to go find them and, you find them in all kinds of fun places, like uh, some of my favorite women that I found for this book, um, I found in some court documents uh, where they got in trouble because so they, they had this scam going. They were bakers here in London and it was like their husbands and them. There's a few people who are doing it. And uh, urban people a lot of times don't have their own kitchens or like their own uh, their own ovens because, you know, everything could catch on fire at any moment. So you sort of like make your own dough, but take it down to the bakery and say, hey, can you bake that for me? And they had the scam going where they had these tables that had holes in them. And then someone would like sit under the hole and steal dough off of the loaf of bread that people had brought in to be baked. And then they'd like put them together and make kind of like Frankenstein loaves and sell them. And then they get in all this trouble for stealing their neighbor's dough. And I just think it's it's so fun to see women like that, where it's like these really low stakes bread based scams going on. That's who we need to talk about if we really want to understand, you know, what the Middle Ages looked like.
0: You have this great line where you say that when we speak of peasants, we shouldn't be too quick to assume that they lived miserable lives of poverty. Mm-hmm. They worked very hard for a living, but that living could be fine. Mm-hmm. I think you could say that basically of anybody living in the Middle Ages. Like, obviously, no period of time was perfect Mm. for the ladies. No. Um, Today is not perfect for the ladies. Mm. Um, But I do wonder, you mentioned earlier that there are some things that were better Mm -hmm. during this period of history than today. What are some things that you envy about the Middle Ages, about being a woman at that time?
1: Uh, Yeah, this is a great question. Um, I think one of the things that uh, we, we discount. A lot of the time is that uh, the Middle Ages is a much more communal society. So people are really doing things as groups. And one of the things that um, comes out of this is that there is a real respect for the actual labor of being a mother. So not only like the labor of taking care of children um, and you know running after them and and changing diapers and feeding people and bathing them and everything, but also even uh, just the physical aspects of giving birth. Like that is really respected as an incredibly dangerous, painful, awful thing that happens, um, which is something that we completely write off now. We're just like, oh, that's fine. I'm sure you'll be okay, you know. Whereas women are still dying in childbirth every day, unfortunately. Um, So there's a real understanding that that is something that women undertake for the greater good and needs to be supported. And so in this kind of communal way that people live in most villages, everyone's kind of bodging in looking after each other's kids, you know, like they are kind of like running around, everyone's sort of keeping an eye on everything. And it just makes society a lot bigger. Whereas I think now in the modern era where everything is really about the nuclear family. You know, it's a very, very difficult to to work a full-time job and, you know, look after a kid and you you know do all these things especially when most of it tends to fall on the plates of women whereas at the time it's like well yeah yeah but send them over to Susie's, and she's going to look after them for a while and then they're going to come back you know and everyone does things together you know women pull together to do laundry together like this is it's a feminized task but everyone is like oh guys okay it's laundry day come on we're going down to the river and we're all going to like bring things together. So there's all these ways of looking at work, making it communal, spreading it out, and making more interpersonal connections than we see now. And one of the good things that you know we experience now is sure women can do most jobs and that sort of thing, but we're really on our own uh, for you know domestic stuff. And I think that the middle ages definitely have us beat in terms of saying you know I need help, and here it is.
0: We have links in the show notes to Eleanor Yanaga's new book, The Once and Future Sex, Going Medieval on Women's Roles in Society. Yanaga also writes the blog Going Medieval, which I'll link to because she goes into quite a bit of detail about women brewers, which we didn't really talk about. And the history of women in beer is what I'm always interested in. And just a heads up, I am going on vacation in the beginning of February, so I'll again be doing that fun thing where I'll do a rerun from the area where I'm going. I think it'll be about as difficult as the time I went to Greece. So if you want to receive a little prize book in the mail and some stickers, send me an email guessing where I'm going. We'll be back with all new episodes on February 17th. Till then, take care and stay sharp.